Good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> hey, let's just start that over. My name's Logan. I'm like your pastor friend. I'm from a couple of neighbors up. The, uh, uh, the play call is important. We all know that who are football fans, right? Like you can think back to Super Bowl 52, Patriots versus the Eagles. I know, boo, you're, some of you are Giants fans. But the Eagles had the ball. It was fourth and goal right before halftime when they, they pulled a trick play. The they center hiked the ball to the running back. The running back pitched it to the tight end. The tight end threw it to the quarterback, and it was known as the Philly Special. And the Eagles ended up winning the Super Bowl. You guys, you guys are with me, right? <laughs> okay. Um, that was a great play call, right? And it ended up winning the game. But there's also bad play calls, like uh, I believe Super Bowl 49, where you had the Seahawks versus the Patriots. All the Seahawks needed to do was use the best running back in the league and run the ball one yard to win the Super Bowl. Yet they decided, Pete Carroll decided to throw the football and it was intercepted. The rest is history. The Patriots won. It was a bad play call and it lost them to gain the game. And as a coach, you can assemble a great team. You can motivate that team. You can train that team. But at the end of the day, those people are going to have to get on the football field and they are going to have to run a play. And you're like, why are we talking about this? Because that's kind of where we're at in the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has assembled his team. He has his 12 disciples in place. And beyond that, he has a, a crowd of disciples that have been following him. So he's got his people. And there's a question rumbling in the minds of those who are following him. Jesus, this is great. I'm for the teaching. I'm for the healing. I'm for all of this. But Jesus, what's the play? What is your vision for life in this world? How should God's people act? And it's a relevant question because in Jesus' day, there were all sorts of different religious leaders and different religious sects that had different plays. You had the group who said, you know what we need? <clears throat> more laws, stricter laws. We need to be more diligent to keep the commandments. That was one group. You had another group. They were like, what? No, 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 no. What we need is revolution. We need to revolt against the Romans and get our freedom now. You had another group. They said, no, 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 that will never work. What we need to do is play nice with the Romans. We need to assimilate. I know like they don't do all the things that we do, but can't we just get along with them? Then you had another group. This was the group that was like, no, no, no. You guys are all wrong. Here's the play. All of the Jews who are really faithful, what we need to do is we need to leave town. We need to move to the countryside, to the mountains, and we'll worship and pray and do our thing by ourselves. And all these competing plays for God's people were floating around. And now Jesus has the disciples and everybody's like, Jesus, now will be a great time for us to hear your play. How do we live as God's people? Jesus, what's your vision for how we should live moving forward? Jesus, what is the way of life that leads to real blessedness, true happiness, lasting joy? 
So today, we're going to look at Jesus' play. It's a sermon he preached in Luke chapter 6. It's commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. According to Jesus, what are the characteristics of the good life? Typically, we read the chapter right at the front, but I'm going to actually break it into pieces. We're going to read the full sermon, but we're going to break it up over our time together. The first characteristic of the good life that Jesus tells us is dependence. Dependence. And this may come as a surprise to many of us because most of us spend our whole lives trying to be independent. We spend our whole lives trying not to be dependent on anyone. Our culture values self-sufficiency. Jesus values dependence on God. And so he says, starting in verse, uh, Luke 6, verse 20, And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you have read the Gospels before, you know that Jesus actually spends a great deal of time talking about money and possessions. And now he's beginning his most famous sermon talking about money and possessions. But this passage actually tells us why this is such a big deal to Jesus. You see, the way the world, the way, the way God sees the world is fundamentally different than we tend to see the world. The, the way the culture explains to us the good life goes something typically like this. You want to be happy? Great. Find money, comfort, pleasure, approval, and success. There's the path. That's what the world is going to say. You want to be blessed. You want to find joy. You need to run after money, comfort, pleasure, approval, and success. Happiness is going to be the result of you having good circumstances. Even our English word happy comes from the word happenstance. Right? It's luck. You happen to have a good set of circumstances, therefore you are happy. And then Jesus comes along and he's like, no, no. I know that's what the world tells you to do, to be happy. But in fact, I'm telling you right now, just take those values and turn them upside down. The good life is not based on your circumstances. The good life is one of actually joyful dependence. And sometimes your resources keep you from experiencing it. And sometimes your lack of resources helps you see it. So looking at his disciples, Jesus says, are you poor? Don't worry, you're blessed. 
Why? Yours is the entire kingdom of God. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You have a spiritual inheritance in him. You are heir to the king of the universe. Are you hungry? You're blessed. Why? Because you have ultimate satisfaction in God. You're able to appreciate actually a satisfaction that goes deeper than your physical needs. Are you suffering, weeping, struggling? I know there's a lot of pain in the world, but your future is with God, one of joy. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Are you hated? Because you're my follower. Guess what, you're blessed too. You know why? Because though those around you may reject you, you have the approval of the God of the universe. Your heavenly fathers, yes and amen. Your heavenly fathers, love. You are blessed. And you see what Jesus is doing. He's just taking the values of the world and he's turning them on their head. He's saying, actually, your current neediness points you to a future hope. And your future hope enables you to have a present joy. It's easy to lose heart. Maybe you're in this situation. It's easy to lose heart when we suffer poverty, hunger, hate, and we think, you know what? That's just the way the world is. That's just the reality. The powerful people, the rich people, the comfortable people, they have it made. And Jesus is like, time out. Not so in my kingdom. All is not as it appears. All that glitters is not gold. And actually all that is really, really valuable might not glitter right now. Your present pain and hunger, it does not preclude you from deep and abiding joy. Jesus says, if that's you, let your neediness propel you to dependence upon God because in that dependence upon God, you will find the path of true joy. But let me be clear. Having a lot of money or not having a lot of money is actually not the issue Jesus is getting at. We tend to read this and be like, rich and poor? Yeah, woe to you who are rich, yeah. No. Poverty is not somehow more virtuous and riches are not somehow more sinful. That's not the point Jesus is making. The issue is where are we putting our trust? What are we dependent on? Our stuff, our money, our comfort, or on God? Blessedness, happiness, and joy are not tied to our circumstances. They are tied to knowing God. And sometimes our stuff gets in the way of us actually trusting God. Right? How many rich people in this world? And probably many of us, right? We live in the West, one of the richest societies in human history. How often are we praying, praying God, give us this day our daily bread? No, we got that. No, but does our lack point us to God? That's the point. And the warning is, don't let your stuff get in the way of you trusting God. Because the issue is not what you have or what you don't have. The issue is where your heart is at. Dependence on God is the goal. And if dependence is the goal, then your neediness is an advantage. Second, the second characteristic we're going to see in the sermon is that the good life Jesus presents to us is full of love. 
love. And again, this is not surprising to us. Even if you are in the room this afternoon and you're like, I'm just trying out Jesus. I don't really know about the Bible. I don't really know about the whole Christianity thing. And I were to say, hey, what's Jesus about? You would say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He taught the way of love. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But the deeper question is, why love? What type of love is Jesus talking about? And how do we even love the way Jesus teaches? And his answer might surprise us. So let's keep reading the sermon. He says in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." You guys remember the famous quote by the boxer Mike Tyson. He was getting ready to fight Evander Holyfield and somebody asked him about his fight plan. One of the greatest quotes ever. This is what Mike Tyson said. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And this is true for boxers. This is also true for followers of Jesus, right? We all have a great plan to follow Jesus until the weak punches us in the face, right? We, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. You know, I'm going to do all the things, Jesus. And then Monday comes, and you're like, oh, right? You get kicked in the face by something that weak. Your boss who drives you crazy or that neighbor who annoys you. To, you know, all these things begin to happening. And then it's like, that's when we need the plan. And in fact, did you notice Jesus spends half of this passage that we just read distinguishing between the love of friends and the love of enemies? He says, my way that I'm trying to teach you is not love like the world does it. I'm telling you, love your enemies. He's like, hey, loving easy people, loving people who love you back, loving people who can benefit you in some way, you don't need Jesus for that. I mean, how many times does he say, even the sinners do that, right? He's like, that's not Christian. That's everyone in the world does that. Oh, you're rich? Let's be friends. I bet you throw great parties. Oh, you're well-connected? I'll be kind to you because you can get me into the circles that I want to get into. Oh, you have something I want, so I will love you, so eventually you'll give me what I want. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm talking about. That's the way the world loves. That's not love, it's self-interest. So what Jesus is saying, he's like, guys, would you just hear how radical this is? I'm talking about love 
generosity, kindness, blessing, and mercy for your enemies. Those who drive you crazy, those you would rather not ever see again, those who have done you wrong. I love the way that New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. The instructions have a fresh spring-like quality. They are all about new life bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete and startling everyone with their color and vigor. What if God, or what if God's people actually lived like this? What if our love wasn't just a feeling of goodwill, but tangible actions? What if love wasn't just our good intentions, but this type of absurd generosity? How would our blocks look different? How would our buildings look different? How would our workplaces look different if we were these type of people of love? But I know. You're like, how can anyone live like that? That just doesn't even make sense. Like, how can a person possibly love like Jesus is talking about? What could motivate someone to actually do that? And that's what Jesus, that's how Jesus ends his little passage here. We love others this way because that is the way God loved us. It's like, hey, you should go and love difficult people. Why? Because you're one of them. And God loved you. Actually, when you were at your worst, you were running from God. You had said no thank you to God. You had written God off and gone your own way. God was like, I'm coming for you. I'm sending Jesus to die for you. Verse 35, you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Our God is a generous God. He gives good gifts to those who don't deserve them. It's called grace. Our God is a merciful God. He continues to forgive and to restore even when we run away from him. Our God is kind. And this is amazing. Our, the passage tells us, who is God kind to? Those who have their acts together, who give generously to the church, who serve the poor, pray. No. Verse 35, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You're like, what? He's kind to those who have rejected him. And this is part of the point that Jesus is making. How we view God will determine how we view other people. Meaning if we think God is generous and kind and gracious and merciful, guess what? We will be empowered to treat others the same way. 
if we believe that God is vindictive, petty, angry, and stingy, then we will be treating people that way too. How we view God will determine how we treat others. But we serve a God who died for his enemies. He gave everything for those who rejected him, even his disciples, who he is preaching this sermon to at this moment in history. They were sitting on the front row. His disciples would reject him in his greatest moment of need. Even Peter, he said, I will never deny you three times that afternoon. Even for you, I've loved you when you don't deserve it. So you go out to those who are difficult, your enemies, those who have hurt you, and you love as I have loved. The third characteristic we see in this sermon of the good life, it's not just love, it's not just dependence, it's integrity. And what I mean by integrity, uh, I don't necessarily mean just, oh, just being a good person. No, integrity is meaning, it's what, it's what you say, it's what you do, and who you are, all lining up. What you say, what you do, and who you are when no one else is watching. When those things are in line, you are a person of integrity. And so Jesus actually gets to this issue by talking about judging others. And for us, we should actually perk up when we hear Jesus talking about judging others because this is something we all know. Ask anybody in our neighborhoods what they think of Christians. And the most common answer you will get are that Christians are judgmental. Christians are judgmental. Yet Jesus talks about it. What does he say? Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck, that is, take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Judge not, Jesus says, lest you be judged. What is Jesus talking about here? Because there are several wrong ways that we can avoid judgment. One way that we can judge not is to abandon right and wrong, right? To say, okay, fine, I won't judge. I'll just get rid of all of my moral standards. I'm throwing them out the window. You have your truth. I have my truth. Judge not. That's an option. Another option is we could abandon concern 
for the people we love, people in our lives. Oh, you're making terrible decisions that are destroying your life. Well, judge not. You're on your own. Judge not lest you be judged, right? We can abandon our moral standards. We can abandon our care for a brother or sister. Or perhaps Jesus is talking about something different, which of course he is. He's not saying abandon right and wrong. He's not saying abandon care for others. Actually, the real issue that Jesus is getting at here is hypocrisy. He's saying, listen, this does not make sense. You are judging people and you are not living to that standard. Right? You are condemning people in, for doing things that you yourself are not doing. Saying the opposite of hypocrisy is integrity. So Jesus is like, listen, why are you pointing the finger out all the time? You're the problem. You're all the problem. Instead of first pointing the finger at yourself and say, what if I'm the problem? What if my heart is the problem? And of course, during Jesus' day, this was a very serious issue. The Pharisees were known for laying religious burdens on people, burdens that they themselves could not carry. And Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Judged. And he gives several metaphors. Stay with me. These are supposed to be funny. Jesus is uh, using actually several metaphors here that would be, he would have got a chuckle out of his first century audience. He's like, listen, you guys are acting like a blind man leading a blind man and both of them falling into a pit. It's like this week I went to the eye doctor and I let them dilate my eyes, which I hate. I hate the eye doctor. And I forgot to bring my sunglasses. It was, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like you're, you cannot, you walk out of the eye doctor and you're like, oh, I'm like blinded. I cannot see anything. I really thought I was going to get hit by a car. I was like, this is, I cannot walk. It would be like me walking out of the eye doctor like this, like, oh, being like, you look lost. I mean, you know, I'll show you the way, right? It just like doesn't make sense. It does not make sense, Jesus says. You're both going to end up in the street. But he's like, yeah, okay, but it's also like this. It's like your friend has a speck in his eye, and it's a dangerous speck. It's a troublesome speck. He really needs to get that speck out, and here, yo, I got it. Don't worry, I will take care of that speck for you. And you show up to do the surgery with a log in your eye, right? Like you have a two by four in your head and you're like, man, that speck is terrible. Let me get that out, right? And Jesus is like, guys, this does not make any sense. He said that the better approach here is to be people of integrity, right? We're not throwing judgment out the window, right? We're not abandoning moral right, rights and wrongs. We're not abandoning love for our neighbors. But what we're doing is first and foremost pointing to ourselves before we point at anybody else. We're not asking others to carry burdens that we are not willing to carry ourselves. And all of this is actually pointing to something deeper, we do not have the ability to judge with perfect love and justice. We are too blind. We have too big of a log in our eye. But there is someone who is qualified to judge with perfect love and perfect justice. His name is Jesus. We can trust him to be the judge. It's not who God has called us to be. He's called us to be people of integrity, pointing the finger 
first here before out there. Finally, finally, the last characteristic of the good life we see in Jesus' sermon is obedience. Or the way Jesus would put it, is hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. This is how he finishes the sermon. Stay with me. This is the last point, the last part of the sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. The ruin of that house was great. This is how Jesus ends one of his most famous sermons. And it's as if he knows exactly how you and I, 2,000 years later, are going to respond to his teaching. We're going to sit around in the room. We're going to hear it. We're going to read it. We're going to nod our heads like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, amen. Wow. Jesus is way, his ethic, I mean, it's amazing. This is unbelievable. Yes, amen. And then we're going to leave and not do any of it. We'll have great intentions, but actually when push comes to shove and the busyness and the stress of life happens, we won't put any of it into practice. So Jesus ends the sermon in such a pointed way for his first century followers and for us. He says, I just can't let you nod in agreement and live in defiance. So he asks this question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? really difficult question to, to hear. It gets right to the heart of the issue. He's like, guys, it doesn't make sense for you to say, Jesus is in charge. Jesus sits in, on the throne of my life. Jesus is Lord. And then to act like you're in charge and you're Lord. It's like, it just doesn't make sense. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He said, it's like a building. You have all the plans. Great. You've received all the plans for this foundation. You just didn't, never built it. Right? You had great intentions to build it. You might have hired the guy to draw you the plans. But you just said, you know what? Plans are great. I'm not going to build this. And then the storm comes, the flood rises, and the house is wiped away. And of course, no one in the room this afternoon would say, that's what I want. I want to have an insecure foundation. I want to be vulnerable to the elements. You know, I want my life to be shaky. No, we all want to be secure. We all want to be the type of person, to have the type of faith that stands firm in trial. Jesus says that only comes one way. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me, hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Then he describes this house. He says three things, coming, hearing, doing. 
First, we have to come. This is always the first step with Jesus. Come to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the foundation that we want is strong, not because of our building skills. It's strong because of the foundation it's built upon, which is Christ. So we have to come to him. This is always the first step, that first step of faith and trust and surrender where we say, Jesus, here I am, all of me, all of my pain, my sin, my brokenness. Here are my needs. Here's all the wrong that has been done to me. Here's all the wrong that I have done. Jesus, I come. I need you to be my savior. I need you to save. Jesus, I need you to be my Lord. I'm putting you in charge of my life. And we come to him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, come, then he says, hear. Hear his word. The truth is, many of us struggle to actually do what Jesus said because our inputs are all off. We can't do what Jesus says because we haven't heard what Jesus said. Right? We are so busy. The noise of the world is so loud. Can we even hear God's voice? Are you in his word? Are you walking in step with the Holy Spirit? Are you walking alongside brothers and sisters in Christ? What are your inputs? What are your inputs? What are you listening? What are you hearing? Is it the voice of God? Come, hear his word, and finally, very simply, do. It's not enough. I wish it was. It would be a lot easier. Come and hear. No, he said, but that's like having the the building plans and not using them. You have to do. So the question this morning, this afternoon, is where have you heard the word of Christ and gone the other way? What is he calling you to do? What are the steps of obedience he is calling you to And we need to remember that Jesus himself, who preached this sermon, would one day end up on a Roman cross. He would be the one who uh, was hit. He would have his shirt ripped from his back. He would go to the cross, have his house knocked down, metaphorically, if you will. Like all, the, all the worst that could have happened actually happened to Jesus in our place. So when we look at his ethic, we look at his call, we look at the type of vision he has for his people, it's not a vision where we say, oh, it's not a second legalism. Oh, if I do all that, then God will love me. No, the cross tells us it's not the case. Jesus took all of the punishment, and then when we trust in him, he empowers us, he fills us, he propels us to obey. We don't obey to Um, gain his approval, we obey because we've already received it. And that's the good news of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful. We're grateful for Christ. We're grateful for the work that he's done on the cross for us. God, we want to be people of integrity this afternoon, people of great dependence, people of love, people of obedience. So God, what are you calling us to do? Where are you prompting us even right now in this moment? God, bring to mind those areas of obedience that we need to walk in. God, may we meet with you in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.